So the outline says the God of Christmas. Uh, This Christmas we've been looking at Matthew's account uh, of the second birth of Jesus. Uh, You remember we started with the visit of the angel to Joseph uh, in Matthew chapter 1, verse 18 to 25. Uh, There we learned in that passage that Jesus was born to save us from our sins. You remember the angel said, you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Last week we looked at the visit of the wise men uh, in Matthew chapter 2, verse 1 to 12. Uh, We saw that they came from the east, and the reason they came was to worship the newborn king, Jesus. And that passage taught us that the birth of Jesus is God coming to be our king. Well, this morning what I want us to do is to end our journey in Matthew by looking at the flight of the Christmas family to Egypt in Matthew chapter 2, verse 13 to 23, which our brother Samuel read for us. And this passage really is picking up, I think, uh, what we had already been taught in the first part of Matthew, which we read, which we had read in Matthew 1, verse 18 to 25, that Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. And in this passage, I think, we see something of what it means for God to be with us in Jesus. There are three truths I just want us to explore briefly this morning uh, from this difficult passage. And the first truth I want us to see in this passage is that God is with us in our danger. God is with us in our danger. Look with me there at verse 23. Uh, It's been a long day and the wise men have come and gone. They've gone back to the east. So Mary and Joseph decide, would imagine, to get some sleep, right? And then the unexpected happens. Look at verse 13. Now when they, that is the wise men, had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. Now, some fathers here may remember a time when you were fast asleep and then your wife woke you up from sleep. Uh, We have an emergency. The water has broken. It's time to get to the hospital, right? And uh, the commotion, the panic, uh, you're scrambling for the car keys if it's happening at night. It might happen for Brother Jameson. (laughs) If it's happening at night, right? Uh, Just the emergency. Well, Joseph here has a bigger emergency than that. The angel, I just told him, they need to get out of town now during the night. And the reason is that the government is hunting them down. And so as we expect, they quickly pack their bags, don't they? Look at verse 14. And he arose, that is Joseph, and took the child, Jesus and his mother Mary, by night and departed to Egypt. Now, the the night journey to Egypt is over 75 miles. Uh, You can imagine there is no military escort uh, for the newborn king. This is a run through the night. We can imagine Mary and Joseph constantly looking at their backs, isn't it? Uh, Not because of simply because of Herod's henchmen that are after them, but also because they are thieves on the road. This is a dangerous flight to Egypt. 
And you know, when I thought about this, this surprised me. I hope it surprises you as well. Um, I would think raising God the Son as your baby would be a fun exercise. <laughs> I mean, having a child who is God, I mean, that must be, you'd think that would be fun, wouldn't it? Very safe. But this is no fun for Mary and Joseph. In fact, it's become a dangerous business. And the Bible here is reminding us, isn't it, that the closer you are to Jesus, to King Jesus, the more danger you are going to face in your life. And immediately we ask the question, don't we? Why is that? Why is being closer to King Jesus, God who controls all the things, all of a sudden becomes more dangerous? Well, because on top of living through the ordinary issues of life as a human being in a fallen world, those who are closest to Jesus also face the danger simply for following Jesus. John 15, verse 18 to 20, the Lord Jesus speaking himself spoke to this. John 15, 18 to 20 says this, If the world hates you, you know that he has hated me. Before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep your word. The Lord Jesus there in John is saying the devil and the world hates those who follow him. So following Jesus makes your life even more dangerous. It may be a danger of imprisonment or death. It may be the danger of family rejection. Uh, you may face the danger of losing your job or your business simply for being faithful to the Lord Jesus Christ. It may be a danger of, 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 of just no one in the class liking you. You risk that following Jesus. There is, of course, also the danger of sickness for us, even today as we worship under the shadow of Omicron. A small danger, yes, compared to the danger that Joseph is facing here, but still a danger, isn't it? There's still a risk. This passage is reminding us whatever dangerous risks we face for being with King Jesus, we have no reason to fear. Because God is with us. In Christ, God is always present with us. You know, the presence of God uh, with us is like water. Imagine you are completely submerged in water, immense in water. Imagine it is all around you. And there is no escaping its reach. So you are right inside a tank, right? Imagine that. But the water, of course, is also inside you, isn't it? Because biologists say 60% of our body is made up of water. So when you are immersed in water, it is outside and inside of you. Well, God is like water to a true Christian. He covers himself all around us by his omnipresence, but he's also inside us by the Holy Spirit who lives in us. Completely surrounded by God, the Christian is. 
If you are in Jesus, there will never be a time when God is not with you. God does not practice social distancing. And he said that he doesn't wear a mask. He allows us to see him face to face, doesn't he? That's not a comment on masks. I'm just making the point how God is like. God never leaves us nor forsakes us. And he allows us intimately into his presence. And therefore, if God is allowing danger in your life, it is for a reason, beloved. Any suffering God is allowing right now, it is for a reason. It's not because God has abandoned you. It is all part of his plan for your life. As it was part of his plan for the Lord Jesus, as we see in verse 14 to 15. We read that, don't we? And he, that is Joseph, rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. Why? Matthew tells us, this was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt, I called my son. Now Matthew here is quoting Hosea 11 verse 1. Uh, which reminds us that God delivered his people, Israel, from their slavery in Egypt. Right? That's what Hosea 11 verse 1 is about. And therefore, the flight of Jesus to Egypt is symbolic of that deliverance. In, 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 it is teaching us that Jesus is a true king of Israel who has come to deliver all who trust in him from the dangerous spiritual slavery of sin and eternal hell. Now, of all the dangerous, of all the dangers that people are facing right now, the biggest danger is not COVID-19. It is not even the collapsing national economy. The biggest danger that every individual in this country is facing right now is the danger of being under the never-ending wrath of God. That's your biggest risk. That's my biggest risk. And that's what the church in the land at the moment must remember. All human beings are sinners against God. And now his holy wrath rests on each and every one of us. Every single individual in the nation is facing a terrifying future in hell forever. But the wonderful news of this passage, the good news of the Bible is that in this dangerous flight of Jesus to Egypt, we are seeing the answer to our spiritual predicament. The flight of Jesus from danger is reminding us that God in Jesus has come to endure danger from human beings in order to rescue us from spiritual danger. And that's wonderful, isn't it? Because if you're trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ as your king this morning, you are now saved from the dangerous wrath of God that awaits those who reject Jesus. And because Jesus is keeping you safe, you see, from the spiritual, eternal danger under the wrath of God, because Jesus keeps that wrath of God away from you, right? If you know that you have that security, well, beloved, 
If God can do that for you, then you don't have to lie awake at night worrying about any other dangers. Because God has done the greatest thing for you, keeping you from his very wrath of God. So God is now with you in whatever situation. No matter how dangerous this world gets, God is holding your life in his caring hands. Now, this truth does not mean we can never suffer. Jesus here, in some way, is suffering. He starts his life in suffering. So it doesn't mean we can suffer. Because the Lord Jesus says we'll suffer. It means that even in your suffering, even in whatever danger you face, our gracious God is working for his glory and is working for your good. As we're seeing in this passage, even that danger, it is God at work. Out of Egypt, I called my son. So it doesn't mean you won't suffer. It means God's purposes are being fulfilled if he allows danger in your life. It also doesn't mean that you should be reckless in face of danger. No. There is a time to run to Egypt and a time to remain in Jerusalem like James the Just in the middle of persecution. So we need wisdom when we face danger. And above all, we must always remember that God, our shepherd, is walking with us in every shadow of danger. So let us trust him. That's the first truth, isn't it? The first truth here is that God, Christmas shows us that God is with us in our danger. The second truth we learn here is that God is with us in our depravity. God is with us in our depravity. So Matthew now, right, uh, like a good film director, switches, you know, a bit like our brother, right, like a good camera director, you know, he switches the camera, right? And what he does here is he switches the camera back in time. You know, sometimes if you're watching a movie, you have a flashback. So we're about to see a flashback. He switches the camera back in time uh, in Bethlehem. So the first, the, the Christmas family have run to Egypt, right? And then, um, well, they, they, they've gone to Egypt and then he, he, he switches the camera, right? Um, to, to that moment when they are fleeing, just fleeing to Egypt. And as we see the events, if we're watching this on a screen, right? If we are seeing these events, um, if it was happening today, what we'll be seeing now is the soldiers of Herod, right? Well armed, and they are jumping out of helicopters, right? They are now combing all of Bethlehem. So the family is, is, is gone away, but they are now combing all over Bethlehem. And nearby, right? The area is called red, right? It is under lockdown. Who wants that lockdown? No one is coming in. No one is going out. Remember, it is Bethlehem and the nearby towns. And so we can see now, if we're watching this on video, you know, soldiers kicking down doors, street by street. Children are being dragged to the ground. There is blood spilling on the streets. And historians estimate that at least 30 children under the age of two were killed in cold blood in Bethlehem alone. And here is how Matthew records it for us in verse 16. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious. 
and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem. And in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise man. Now, the weight of depravity that has just descended on the Christmas town of Bethlehem and the whole neighboring region is too heavy for us to bear. Beloved, we should pause and agree that these type of events in the Bible are difficult for us to read. We are wondering, aren't we, why is this event in the Bible at all? We are asking why has God allowed infants to be killed on the account of Jesus? We have such questions. So why is it here? I think there are four reasons. I think, in fact, there are five. I've reduced them to four. I think there are more than four, right? The first reason why this is in the Bible is to remind us that God is not blind to the evil done against babies in the world. God does not sweep anything that is done against children under the carpet. The tragic events that first Christmas are recorded openly so that all human beings can see that God values the life of his children, values the life of all children. And so when they are slaughtered, he records it so that, they can, that the world can see. And he values all children, including the unborn in the womb. They matter to God. That's the first reason. The second reason it is here is to help us see what sin has done to us. You say, everybody's good, basically. That's what some people say. The Bible disagrees. It says, look at this event. Look what sin has done. Sin has turned humanity into monsters who kill defenseless children for self-fulfillment. And it is still going on today, isn't it? You know, in one of the Batman films, The Dark Knight, the Dark Knight Rises, the villain Ben famously says, no one cared who I was until I put on the mask. That's what he says. You see, the point Ben was making is that as human beings, we often willfully deny the reality of evil in the world until it stares us boldly in the face. The matter of these babies, you see, like the evil of the Holocaust, and the Rwandan genocide, and of course abortion today, reminds us that the heart of man is utterly depraved. There is nothing good that dwells in our fallen nature. There is no one good, not even one. Thirdly, I think it is here to warn us of the depravity of all human governments. You know, there's a naivety among Christians in the West, and I think this is a Western syndrome. There's a naivety among Christians in the West that the, our governments are good. We are surprised. Ha! Ah, Austria has locked down. How can that happen? We believe all the policies the government are taking are for your own interest, of course. 
Look, I don't know where this comes from. But I know it's certainly not from the Bible. Because, you know, I've spent reading through the Bible about four times this year already, from cover to cover. And I can tell you, just spend time. I always pause when I go through the book of Chronicles and Kings. Just spend time, just reading those over and over again. I'm sure you reach the same conclusion that power corrupts. It's tragic. Even the most wonderful leaders there, David. It's a tragic end. Tragic end for David. You know, David's actions brought a terrible famine, I think, on his people. David's action ripped apart his own family. Beloved, we must never forget that God works by what the Puritans call contraries, right? God appoints leaders. He ordains them. And yes, it is also true that biblically, governments are the prime instruments of Satan. That's what the Bible teaches. There is no doubt who is behind Herod here. It is that ancient dragon, Satan, we read about in Revelation 12, which always seeks to destroy the work of Christ. Revelation 12 is a Christmas passage, and it's a passage that applies throughout history. It's coming again, it's already happened, and it has happened from the beginning. The dragon has always tried to snatch the male child, as it were, throughout history. Christ and his people. Be warned, beloved. Be warned. You must have a biblical view of government. We should be thankful in some way for that we are here now in the middle of COVID because our blinkers are off. The Lord is calling us back to the scripture to have a biblical view of the dragon and his work through authorities. The whole world, beloved, lies in the power of the evil one, including our own government. Finally, I think this passage is here because it is allowing, God is allowing this tragedy to point us to the only answer to all of human depravity. The answer to human depravity is in this child that Herod wants to kill. Look at verse 17 to verse 18. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation. Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because there were no more. Matthew here takes these words from Jeremiah 31 verse 15. Where the prophet Jeremiah uh, describes the suffering of God's people uh, when when they were taken into exile in Babylon. And to understand them, we must read what he says after them uh, in verse 16 to verse 17 of Jeremiah 31, where God promises to restore Israel after the exile. Let me just read that. Jeremiah 31, uh, verse 16 to verse 17. Uh, It says this, Thus, Says the Lord, keep your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears. For there is a reward for your work, declares the Lord, and they shall come back from the land of the enemy. There is hope 
for your future, declares the Lord, and your children shall come back to their own country. What we have in Jeremiah there, after the terrible prophecy of verse 15, is that we have that promise, isn't it? That God will bring back Israel into the land from Babylon. And we know from the Bible that God did restore Israel. He brought them back, right? But the complete fulfillment, if you like, waited for the arrival of Jesus. The spiritual return of Israel from their spiritual exile we wait, waited for the return of the Lord Jesus Christ, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. This child whom Herod wants to kill. So the key message here that Matthew wants us to take away, therefore, from this tragedy is that it is not an accident, right? God is allowing it to show the depth of our depravity, yes, and most importantly to teach us that Jesus is God with us in our rebellion, in our depravity. The Lord Jesus, if you like, has come to take away the evil of human depravity, human darkness forever. We must remember that the, Lord, the reason why, if you like, why God preserved Jesus through this tragic event. We must remember that. The reason is that it is because the road from Bethlehem, if you like, the road from Bethlehem leads all the way to the hill of Golgotha. Because there on Golgotha, 38 years later, after the massacre of the infants, right, our Lord Jesus willingly identified himself with these murdered babies of Jerusalem, or, or Bethlehem. The Lord Jesus, if you like, willingly and freely laid down his life on the cross like those precious, helpless infants. And he did it to die as a sacrifice to God for our depravity. Beloved, we must never forget. We must never forget that before God, all of us are like Herod. We must never forget that. We look at all these tragic things that Herod is doing here and we think... I wouldn't do that. No, that is wrong conclusion. We are errors. We are all rebels before God. The Bible says all of us stand condemned in our sins before God. There is no one who does good, not even one. You do not have a better claim to God than Herod. You and I deserve hell as much as Herod does. And yet the good news of the gospel is that if you're truly in Christ, God has now taken away your sin. He has wiped it clean forever. The blood of Jesus shed on the cross has cleansed from you from your sin, past, present, and future. You now stand spotless, holy, and pure before God on the account of this Jesus who died on the cross for your sins. Have you recently stumbled in some sin? And you have confessed that sin before God. But the burden of guilt is still weighing heavily on you, isn't it? It always does. Well, remember that God is now with you in Christ, in your depravity. The blood of Jesus has cleansed you from your sins, past, present, and future. If you are trusting in Jesus, there is no longer any distance between you and Him. 
The death of Jesus is fully sufficient for your sins. The cross of Christ has made you clean forever. Beloved, let this truth rest. Settle your restless heart. Let it chase away your worries. Let it fuel your heart to sing and dance before God with great joy. And let us hear this truth also as a church, isn't it? The Lord knows our sins as a church are many. As a church, we do not love each other as we should. We are weak in our prayer life. We don't evangelize. We're often late for things. There's just many things we do as a church. We're not sharing the gospel with our neighbors. We don't open up our homes as we should. We are gripped with corona fear as the rest of the country. There's really no difference as a church sometimes compared to how a social club is reacting to corona. These are corporate sins. We are horrible as a church to our loving Savior in so many ways. A Savior who has given his life for us. And the truth of the matter is that looking upon the church corporately, we do not deserve to be called the bride of Christ. And yet we are his bride. We are. Our sins are many, but his grace is more. In Jesus, we stand cleansed of our corporate sins by his precious blood. And it is all because of this God of Christmas who is with us in our dangers and with us in our depravity. Here's the final truth, and I'll be quick here. The final truth we learn here is that God is with us not only in our danger and depravity, is with us in our defeat. Is with us in our defeat. Matthew now, the camera again switches, isn't it? Matthew now takes us forward in time. Herod has died. It is now time for Jesus to leave Egypt and go back home. That's verse 19. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying... Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel. For those who sought the child's life are dead. Now, we don't know how long they have been in Egypt. We don't know that. But as soon as they hear the command, what do they do? Uh, the, the Christmas family immediately pack their bags, right? And they head back home. Verse 21, and he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. And I imagine that Joseph at this point must be very excited to lead his family back to Bethlehem. But notice that as soon as they arrive in Israel, they hear some bad news. Look at verse 22. But when he heard, so they are planning to go back to Bethlehem, but listen to verse 22. But when he heard that Achelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, that is Herod the Great, he was afraid to go there. Good dad. And being warned in a dream 
he withdrew to the district of Galilee. So Herod the Great is dead. The country is now divided among his three sons, ruling over three provinces. Archelaus rules Judea in the south, and this includes Bethlehem. Herod Antipas, you remember him? We were here when we were studying Mark. So the Herod in Mark is Herod Antipas, right? He's ruling Galilee to the north. And you remember Philip, the Herodias connection, where he's reigning over Samaria, the central province. The key point here is that of the three, interesting enough, is that of the three, Achelaus is the most brutal. And he's deep, as bad as Herod is, right? He's deeply hated by Jews. So Joseph decides not to go back to Bethlehem. Instead, they go to Nazareth as directed. So we read verse 23, don't we? And he lived, and he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled. Now, here's the main point, right? Humanly speaking, the return of the family from Egypt back into Nazareth is a defeat, humanly speaking. Seeing things purely at a human level, it is a defeat. Why do I say that? Well, even men like Herod the Great and his son Achelaus, humanly speaking, seem to have triumphed. They have not killed Jesus, but they have forced Joseph and Mary to return to Nazareth rather than Bethlehem. And it is a problem for them to return to Nazareth because going back to Nazareth, they will face the shame. Remember, they're originally from Nazareth. They will face the shame and town gossip about their marriage. I think, humanly speaking, Nazareth is the last place they want to live. And I can imagine Mary walking with her head in shame and defeat for the sake of her son Jesus. She's back. The town gossiping. Do you see that? He's still with her. It must be very hard for Mary to return to Nazareth. And as I thought about this passage, it reminded me that he's teaching us a crucial lesson, beloved. Being with Jesus does not insulate us from failure or defeat. These things are part of life in a fallen world. Now, this truth is very hard for us to accept. And as I thought about it, it's, it's a Christmas truth that really strikes my heart. Because it is very hard for us to accept this truth. We live in a culture addicted to winning and success. I long to be in Bethlehem, not Nazareth. And I'm sure it's the same for you as well. You see, when we read in the Bible that God loves us and means well for us, we are all tempted to think that everything in our life will be better. Our ministry will be great. Our workplaces will be wonderful. We express that because we expect that because God is our life, our jobs, prospects should be better. Our health should be fantastic. After all, we're seeking to work for Him. Our family life should be plain selling. Why not? If God gives me children, I'll raise them in a biblical way. Why would God not give me that? 
I want it for him. And I know, beloved, these are natural expectations. I don't believe these expectations or longings we have for success are always wrong. In fact, we did a sermon on this during Mark. And I don't think they are from our sinful nature necessarily. They might be, but not all of them. I believe there is all of us, in all of us, we've actually, in Eden, a longing for us for greatness, to, for life to go well. We all want a good family. I think that's a good thing. We want jobs that are enabling us to, to flourish and live for God. We want to have a good church. These are good things and many other things. And yet our longings may not always be fulfilled, beloved, by God. Sometimes God allows us to experience failure and defeat in our lives. Not on account of our sins as such. It just does. Joseph, Mary, Jesus haven't sinned. He's without sin. But they experience pushback. We may never have children that we've always wanted. We may never get married. We may never experience consistently good healing. Our children may never be necessarily the most godly we've always prayed for. We may always struggle financially, no matter how hard we try. We as a church may always be just teetering on faithfulness and never perhaps be spiritually vibrant. We may never have Leaders that we pray for that are faithful and giving themselves to the life of the church. In our lifetime, we may never see revival. And when our hopes are dashed and defeated, there will be those moments in our lives when we ask the question, Lord, where are you? Why have you abandoned me? But alas, this Christmas passage is teaching us that God is not abandoning us. Quite the opposite. He works through our frustrations and defeats. You see, what seems like a setback for Mary and Joseph is not by accident. God has prevented them from going to Bethlehem for a reason, beloved. Look at verse 23 again. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth. Why? Why this defeat? That what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled. He shall be called a Nazarene. Notice Matthew says prophets. That is because there's no single prophet that says he will be called a Nazarene. In fact, they never even talk about Nazareth. So what is Matthew on about? Well, what he's talking about is that we learn in the gospel accounts that Nazareth was not a well-respected place. Do you see the defeat? John chapter 1, verse 46. Or is it 45? Nathaniel said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. 
You see, the, the Nazarenes were scorned. They were despised. And it is this idea of scorn that is all over the prophets, isn't it? Most famously in Isaiah 53, verse 3, that Easter passage we read. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and, and as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. He was a Nazarene. Matthew is using therefore this Nazarene as a euphemism, you see, for rejection and defeat. Jesus has come to identify with all those who are rejected. Uh, and he has come to suffer with those that suffer. He will be called a Nazarene because he will suffer defeat and rejection by his people. Uh, but in his rejection and defeat, you say, beloved, he is the good news of Christmas. He is the hope of Christmas. Because it is through God coming as a baby, living a rejected life, and dying a rejected death on the cross, you and I are accepted by God. That you and I experience victory in the Lord Jesus Christ. Christmas says to us, God achieves victory through our defense. He works through those moments of life when we are on the losing end. Are you going through a defeat at the moment? I am. I am. Are you experiencing failure at the moment? I am. You know, there are passages in the Bible which are only for those of us who experience defeat and failure. And I believe this is one of them. And if you are going through that moment where you feel your life is being defeated, well, remember that God delights to dress Human weakness in divine strength. Isn't that the lesson we learned from Gideon? Well, we are learning here that God delights to dress our defeats, beloved, in divine victory. He works through your defeats. In fact, he wants your defeats. So, and over any situation where you're feeling defeated, where you feel like you're failing, bring them all to him. Stop fighting. Ask him to work through them for his glory and your good. Because that's the God of the Bible. So yeah, to conclude, we have seen here, haven't we, that God is in, with us in our danger. God is with us in our depravity. And finally, the Christmas lesson is that God is with us in our defeat. For his glory and for our good. That, that is the message of Christmas. So let us ask him to help us trust him afresh and to rest in the amazing and true God of Christmas. Amen.